the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Regulators around the world are closing in on cryptos from all angles. The hostility is palpable. There's debates as to whether some cryptos should be treated as securities, currencies, or commodities. If securities, that would bring them under securities regulations. What seems to have prodded the regulators into action is the spectacular collapse of FTX last year, and before that, the unwinding of Terra Luna, Voyager, and others that got caught up in that mess. The US's largest crypto exchange, Coinbase, found itself before the US Supreme Court recently to decide whether the company is within its rights to demand two class action suits be decided by way of arbitration rather than court action. Then there's the court case between blockchain company Ripple and the Securities and Exchange Commission. Ripple stands accused, uh, sorry, I'll say that again. Ripple stands accused of violating securities laws, its XRP token being deemed a security by the regulators. Binance too has its fair share of trouble with US regulators, and yet, and yet, cryptos continue to rally. In times past, this kind of menacing attitude from regulators would prompt a sell-off, but this time seems a bit different. Cryptos appear to be ra rallying, spurred by rising interest rates. Well, to help us make sense of this, we're joined by Vinnie Lingham, no stranger to South Africa, well-known South African tech entrepreneur, now located in the US and co-founder of the recently launched Wait Room, which is a competitor to Zoom, Google Meet, and Microsoft Teams, I would imagine. But it has some interesting improvements on those products. Welcome, Vinny. First time on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. Uh, maybe we kick off a little bit uh, about you and your projects that you're busy with. Tell us a bit about Waitroom. And first and foremost, how does this improve productivity when it comes to online meetings? I, I should just say I had a, a brief look at it yesterday. Uh, it's quite fascinating because it's it's got some notable improvements such as a queuing system and you can have a a clock that ticks down. You've got two and a half minutes to speak, so you don't get somebody hogging the microphone, that kind of thing. So tell us what led to this and, and give us the background. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be, a, um, you know, this is actually one of those like COVID babies, uh, ideas that came about after COVID. Um, I, said, I spent a lot of time doing video conferencing calls on uh, Zoom and Hangouts and Meets and whatever else is out there, probably like a dozen different video conferencing platforms. And none of them really, you know, wanted me to stay with them. I would just move from one browser to another, um, or one app to another. And there was no stickiness. And there's just fatigue. There's too many meetings. Like at the end of the day during COVID, you'd be like, you look at your calendar, you've had 10 calls and you can't remember what the heck you said in every call. Let's just be frank. Like, it was all just a blur. Um, and so I felt there was just a better way of doing it. And so the initial idea was, well, could we clip these calls into shorter meetings? So 10, 15 minute meetings. Can we have people sort of queue up to do these calls and we have a meeting timer? And so make, make it more efficient. Like you don't have to spend the full 30 minutes on a call or the full hour on a call if you, you're done in 15 or 20 minutes. And so maybe we set a, a, a shorter duration time and you have more meetings in the shorter space of time. And instead of spending a whole day meetings, you do all your meetings in two hours. That was the initial uh, um, you know, view of this. And then we also started using GPT-3, which is AI, um, you know, very early on to transcribe uh, and, and at least generate titles and descriptions and, and, you know, and we clip the videos. So now you have a repository of videos that you can review and say, hey, what is that conversation we had last week? And you go quickly watch it. and. 
And you know, and, and the the thing what we didn't the thing we didn't expect was for AI to evolve so quickly. I mean, it's it's evolved rapidly in the past two years, and now we're at a point where we're at GPT four, um, and GPT four is amazing. So we we've kind of pivoted the business, I'd say, in a very big way to be, uh, you know, almost uh, you know, fully focused on the AI components of what we're doing. Um, because we're seeing a lot of demand there. We're seeing a lot of people asking us for more features on AI and, and what else we can do there. And so we're launching our summer bot, which is, um, you know, a bot that sits in the meeting and takes notes. And, uh, you know, we could say, let's meet up next week again at four o'clock. And it would say, okay, you have a meeting at that time. Why don't you try five and send out an invite to both of us? Um, you know, it can send a summary at the end of the meeting, action items, follow-ups, to-dos. It can plug into your CRM tools. It can plug into, uh, we really integrate with Slack. Um, and so the idea is that in a company with even a hundred employees, there's probably hundreds of meetings happening a day, two, three, 400 meetings, a lot of them on video happening every single day. Imagine there's an AI that's listening to all the meetings, writing down notes, taking tasks, follow-ups and spotting problems like, Hey, you know, the, 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 the logistics department thinks that we're shipping this product on this date and they've ordered 20 trucks to pick it up. Um, but you know, based upon a meeting that happened with the product team, they're running two weeks be behind, like that should be flagged to somebody in the organization. So we're thinking deeply about this. We're thinking about how do you, you know, obviously you have to create privacy. You have to take information. Not everyone has access to all the information in the company, but how do you, how do you have like the intelligence of AI that looking across the entire organization and then coming up with ways to improve things and looking for conflicts and looking for opportunities as well. So for us, that, that's what we were basically building, this um, you know, kind of all-knowing, all-seeing assistant that sits in meetings. And it can be used for personal use as well, just for your personal day-to-day -day meetings and um, you know, chats. And just something simple like an e email after a meeting with a, a bunch of follow-ups and notes is, I think, very powerful for people. So th that's the vision for what we're building right now. And I think uh, we're very early stages. Um, but I think this is, this is going to happen, whether, whether we make it happen or someone else does. Um, like Zoom or, or, or Hangouts. But I think we can move faster than anyone else because we're a startup, and that's the whole beauty of being a startup. We don't have the resources, but we do have the speed. Okay, I want to cycle back to the AI aspect that you just mentioned there in, in a little while, but I'd like to pick up with the, what I introduced the, the whole segment with, which was about the regulatory attack, which is coming against a, a lot of these crypto companies. Is there a danger that, uh, and I, I know there's a lot of this is prompted by the collapse of FTX, and of course, cryptos is attracting a lot of fraudsters, and that clearly is of huge concern to regulators. But is there a danger that this is going to result in regulatory overkill, in your opinion? Yeah, I think I think um, overkill is probably not the right word. I think it, it, it would be, it's probably going to result in a dampening of, 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 uh, regulation. So the, the regulators can only really impact the U.S. Uh, that you know, having an impact on the rest of the world is a lot harder because other countries have regulated crypto already. So what the U.S. government and the ACC and whatever else is trying to do is protect U.S. investors from investing in scams. And there's a ton of them out there. I I know South Africans invest in crypto scams. They they see my face on a website and they go, Oh, Vinny's involved with this company, and you know, I just need a wire or deposit the money in this account, and I'm going to make a lot of money. And it's, it's, it's a lie. Like they just, you know, stole my images off the internet and they, and they put up fake websites. So a lot of this happens. It's just, it's a typical crime you get anyway. Um, a lot of the crypto projects are, you know, they, they grifts basically, which means that, that, you know, guys are not in it to actually build the tech. They're just in it to make money. When I started Waitroom about, you know, two, just nearly three years ago, 
part of my, my, my thesis was that, I, I mean, I have a lot of investment in crypto. I'm involved in crypto quite heavily, but, you know, getting to crypto, getting crypto in the mainstream is very hard given the, you know, the distant environment out there, banking regulations. And my view is that I want to go do something else, which is not crypto related, having been in crypto for 10 years. And that's partially because of these issues. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, it's okay to be invested in crypto, to own some Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, Solana, like, you know, whatever you like and, and sit back and watch and see what happens. But I, I think personally, um, there's just, I don't own a lot of coins. I don't own like, you know, bags of hundreds of coins because I think a lot of them are scams. I think there's, there's a very, there's a very small number of coins. I think that you can hold with any reasonable, um, expectation of, of something happening, uh, and, and progress happening. I think most of these things are junk. And that's from someone who's an insider. Um, most of them have no real value except, you know, uh, the ability to you know, raise money for teams to, to um, you know, do whatever they want with the money. And, I, and I've seen this happen over and over. People raise money. You know, it's called rug pulls, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, it, 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 it's a tough space. So, you know, I, I think crypto still goes up in the long term. I just don't know which ones um which ones are the you know which ones are the you know lead the race? Other than, I think Bitcoin is safe, um, Ethereum is safe, Solana, Filecoin. These are the you know these are the four that I, I think that are the best cryptos out there right now. Um, you know, and and I don't think investing wide and broad across hundreds of tokens makes a ton of sense at this point. Uh, it's highly speculative. The Bitcoin network is very uh, decentralized. It's the most decentralized network, but the holdings of Bitcoin are not that decentralized. There's a lot of centralization of wealth. And so, they, they, you know, that's a concern for governments. They, you know, their concern is that, well, I think 70% of the Bitcoins are owned by like, you know, a thousand addresses. So there's, the, the wealth is reasonably centralized um, in Bitcoin and Ethereum is probably worse. So, you know, and so, I mean, Solana as well and a few others. So, you know, we, we haven't got true decentralization in crypto. Um, at, at every layer yet. And it may happen over time. And there's some arguments that Bitcoin decentralizes its wealth over time, which is fine if it happens. Um, but I, you know, I own Bitcoin, I own Ethereum, I own Solana, I own Filecoin, I own Render. Um, I have a, you know, like I said, I have a small portfolio, but I, it's not for the faint of heart. And for people who think this is easy money, quick wins, you might as well go to the casino. I mean, you know, hundred bucks and eight gets you a good return. <laughs> yep. All right. I mean, but talking of that, Bitcoin has had a pretty astonishing run this year. And I was just recently looking at MicroStrategy and the institutional shareholding in MicroStrategy. Now, for those who don't know, MicroStrategy is a company, it's a tech company. Uh, I think it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange or, or the NASDAQ, but it's got about 140,000 Bitcoin. And that, it's got this strategy where they're investing money, even lending money to invest in Bitcoin. And the average price at which they bought was about uh, about $29,000. But if you look at who is buying MicroStrategy, which is a proxy for Bitcoin, because the MicroStrategy share price does follow the Bitcoin price. You've got Bank of America, you've got BlackRock, Fidelity Management, Vanguard, Capital Research. They've all been loading up on MicroStrategy shares. And well, if the way you see it, is there a fundamental change in the institutional attitude towards Bitcoin? You've already spoken about the concentration that there's less than a thousand addresses controlling maybe seventy percent of all Bitcoin. Was this inevitable, and is this the way it's going to go? I mean, I I, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> I can't tell you the future. 
I, I do think that um, the least worst option wins out when things go bad. <laughs> so if the if the world goes into a financial crisis, if the U.S. debt bubble spirals, if you know uh, other countries of the world have to raise interest rates because of IP inflation, Bitcoin is probably the least bad of all these options. Um, and so it's not about the best anymore. It's about the one that's not going to go to zero. Uh, and I think uh, uh, people don't appreciate how bad the U.S. debt situation is right now. It's like thirty-three trillion dollars. The Fed balance sheet's about eight trillion dollars. Um, you know, the interest interest is climbing. Um, the rest of the world's feeling pressure. Inflation is maybe under control right now on its way down, but they have to keep rates higher for longer. So, you know, we don't know. I, I don't know how the U.S. ever pays off its debt right now. I mean, to get to a point where there's a surplus is almost impossible with political situation right now. Uh, you know, austerity measures are not an option in the U.S. because of Medicare, Medicaid, aging population, etc. cetera. Um, so, you know, what becomes the store of value for the world? and currency. So it's probably gold or Bitcoin, to be honest, at that point. Um, the US dollar will still probably reign supreme as the, the unit of account, but I think it's going to lose its purchasing power value dramatically over the next 10 years. Okay. Tell us a bit about your journey in cryptos and how that started. And I presume it started in South Africa. And for people who don't know, you're not resident in South Africa anymore. So give us a bit of the backstory. Well, yeah, I mean, I left South Africa in 2000. I made the decision in 2007 when Zuma won the uh, ANC conference. I was like, okay, we're out of here. This is, this is going to go, this shit's going to go downhill. <laughs> I think it was a very foresightful, even if I do say so myself. Um, and within like four months, I left the country and I moved to, uh, so I moved to Silicon Valley. But part of it was, that, I mean, the power, we started, that's when we started having all the power outages, if you remember. Uh, 2007. So I'm like, I can't run a tech business like this. This is insane. Uh, and then the internet was really slow back in those days. It was so slow that in one stage it was cheaper and faster to to ship a disk, a CD-ROM to our data center in 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 Texas from Cape Town every single day than to upload the information. And it would be cheaper and faster. That's how bad it was back then. So I moved to Silicon Valley because you know I'm a tech guy and I I just couldn't operate in the SA context, especially in terms of global tech. Um, spent, you know, about a decade in Silicon Valley, built a bunch of companies, invested in, you know, I think I'm invested in hundreds of companies at this point. I, I actually don't keep track of them directly. Um, I have a, you know, I have a team that's, you know, obviously tracks everything, but it's over as well over a couple of hundred. Um, and I started a company called Gift in 2000 2012, um, and you know, it was it was just the usual Silicon Valley game, right? You you raise some capital, you start an app. It was a, it's a mobile gift card app. Um, it worked really well. We figured out how to make it work um, with digital gift cards. We also uh, did something really interesting, which was we added Bitcoin very early, so 2013 into our platform, and we became a, basically the biggest Bitcoin site on the internet. Um, so you could go to gift.com, or you could download our app, and you could buy a gift card at Amazon or anywhere using using Bitcoin and we stumbled upon it because of all the credit card fraud worldwide. So I got deep into the payment stack and understanding what these problems were with, with credit cards. And and Bitcoin solved a lot of those problems back then. Uh, Bitcoin's architecture has changed a bit right now, so that's not as applicable. But that's how I got into Bitcoin. And uh, we sold the company to First Data um, Corporation um, you know, back in 2014, about a billion rand uh, after two and a half years of building it. So, um, you know, uh, it's it was a, it was a good exit for us. Um, myself, my co-founders, a whole bunch of South African developers in Cape Town, which we used. They were everyone made 
bunch of money and um you know it was great and then i invested heavily in crypto and rode up the crypto wave for a bit longer and um you know i've done a lot in crypto um won't go into all the details but uh you know i was first invested in filecoin um I, you know, I, I joined Multicoin in 2017 as I started anything out, and uh, we built pretty much the biggest crypto hedge fund in the in, in the world, at least at one point, and I think it's probably still today with everything else collapsing. Um, but uh, yeah, um, you know, led the deal, the, the first round into Solana as well uh, for Multicoin. So I've been I've been in crypto for a while, but again, I, I, I've kind of like stepped out a bit, a bit back and just focusing on building consumer products, which I really enjoy, and so. Um, no, not consumer, but like things that are used by real people. So even if it's a business to business part of like, like Waitrum, you know, I, I want stuff people can use. And crypto is, it's not that usable. It's a very small market. There's maybe a hundred million people and of which, you know, maybe five or 10 million really, really are, you know, average crypto people. And so it's really hard building products when you have such, such a small user base to work with. Are you originally from Cape Town? I was born in East London. Uh, I went to uh, Hudson Park High School. Uh, matriculated in 96, moved to Cape Town to study at UCT, didn't finish uh, my final year because uh, emerging markets crisis basically uh, created a whole bunch of financial hardships and stuff. So I had to drop out and, you know, literally like moved to Joburg, uh, work on the streets of Joburg, <laughs> staying in hotels and stuff, trying to find a job back in 2000s and uh, grinding away for two or three years. Um, took about three or four jobs in Joburg eventually, um, you know, bought a, had a small little townhouse uh, in the logo, which I sold in 2003 to start, um, incubator, which, um, was my, my first company. Um, I'm not sure if you saw, but it was sold recently to the Carlisle group, uh, a few months ago. So, you know, it's, I think it was like 900 people at the time they sold, you know, a couple hundred million bucks exit, I think. Uh, but you know, I saw, I exited that in 2012 when I moved to the U S but I, I started that in my bedroom in Joburg. So. That's a great. That was a great South African um, success story. As it's one of the leading, um, you know, ad tech platforms out there, and I, that's what kind of gave me my fame and recognition back in the days. Because I was a search engine marketing platform. We we had Walmart.com as our client um, in the early two thousand. So literally, like all of Walmart's search ads ran through Cape Town. <laughs> so we built that business from scratch. It was great. It was a good experience. Uh, very entrepreneurial. Um, and then my journey just continued from there. We see a lot of encouraging crypto activity in, in Africa, especially in countries like Nigeria, pretty much all over the continent. Countries where, like in Nigeria, peer-to-peer crypto exchanges are just proliferating. And it's a way of getting around that, that country's hostility towards cryptos and Bitcoins generally. But it seems the big advances are happening in the payment space, which you touched on a little bit earlier. Is there a chance that Africa can cure its curse of weak and debased local currencies using these payment platforms and technologies? I, I don't really think so. Um, and the reason is I think that the governments in Africa don't want to give uh, citizens as much freedom and, uh, and power as they should or are entitled to um, because the, the corruption levels are really high. I mean, Africa has been brought up by special interests abroad, which is hard, as we, we all know. Uh, we're going to have this problem where, where governments want you to use fiat currency. Um, and that's just that's just the reality of it. They they want they want to print their own currency, and then, and they're not willing to make the currency hard. So and you can't right because um, I mean I actually think South Africa is reasonably well run in terms of debt to GDP ratio. It's still under 100 percent the last I checked. 
So, um, you know, but I think the rest of Africa, I mean, look, crypto is being used for, you know, obviously lots of illicit stuff. But, you know, the, the one, like, I think the, the, the least illicit thing that gets used for is tax evasion. Because it's not really, I mean, it's a crime against the government, but it's not really like, you know, you know you're not paying for drugs and weapons and whatever else. It's just, you know, people trying to hide their wealth from the government. Um, but that's a very big use case of crypto. And so people, this is why peer-to-peer -peer exchanges in Nigeria uh, take off because they don't want to have the government see how much money they make, what they're making for. It's the same as, by the way, this is no different from people who run cash businesses, you know, cash and carry businesses. Like, hey, you know, the guy comes to your house, I'll do this work for you, you pay me cash, I'll give you a discount because they don't want any, any trace and tracking. This is human behavior. Crypto just basically gives you a digital way to do the same thing. What's your, okay, let's go back to this AI uh, issue that you, you, you spoke about in the beginning. Uh, and the rate of development has been unbelievable, as you mentioned. You know, you you started waiting with, I think you said Chat GPT three. We're now on four. Um, what is what's kind of going to blow our minds? Do you think with AI in the next year or two? I mean, the the the, the biggest hot trend right now is something called um, auto 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 GPT. So um, uh, essentially, its ability to create apps to to chat GPT and tell it to go do stuff. So you could say, go book a restaurant for me tonight at five o'clock uh, for four people at whatever steakhouse and it'll do it for you. So it's like, it's, 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 I, I think Google search is dead personally. I think it's, it's going to be, it's going to be irrelevant very soon. Fascinating. I, I, I tell you, I've, I found some interesting cheats using um, chat GPT, you know, cause you often come across a book, that, that that is referenced and and i started using this it's like uh war and peace by leo tolstoy i said give me give me a two-page summary of war and peace um of course it's a cheat sheet because i don't have to then go and read a, a very dense book i can get a I can get a summary pretty quick and there's all sorts of it's quite astonishing I, i've done it myself by the way i've done it myself because like some of these books are just too long to digest yeah yeah, it's and, amazing. You, you can give me a summary in two thousand words, or five thousand words, or ten pages. You can, you know, ask for as much data as you want, information you want. But it's actually very powerful. When you start to see that kind of thing, you can see how the world is going to change. And uh, I mean, of course, people in schools—they're um, going to find all kinds of ways to cheat the system. But you could also look at it in a positive sense: is that they could become extremely learned in in a whole range of fields that they might not otherwise touch just because of this AI. Well, you got to ask yourself, like, do we want to train kids with the same school syllabus and curriculum and, and method of learning that's outdated? Like, what's the point of memorizing a whole bunch of useless facts in these days? Like, I look at, like, my 12 years at, at, at school in South Africa. What a waste of time. The only subject that actually mattered is probably math um, and, and maybe some science. Everything else is, like, I can't remember half the stuff I did in, in, in geography and biology. Like, it doesn't even matter. Like, the you know, remembering what, what, the body of a locust. Like, who cares? <laughs> you know? It's, like... There's some hard, like, I think hard science is important. I think, actually, I think the creative, creative arts are important as well. I think, you know, music and arts and, um, and science, that's the stuff that people should, but, but like, you know, and maybe a little bit of history, maybe a little bit of geography, but a lot of the, 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 and the way they test kids is just not practical. It's like, you know, it's all rote learning. You have to go sit and cram for like hours to memorize stuff so you can, it's, it proves nothing. I mean, literally like school is just basically memory testing. Right. So you've incorporated AI into Waitroom, and you've you've got it doing some real fancy stuff there, like um, 
picking up on follow-up actions that need to be done. Uh, this needs an email afterwards, or uh, there's a Correct. problem there. You, you mentioned one example of uh, we're agreeing to ship a whole bunch of goods out to somebody, but maybe we don't have the stock. And it, it yes. can it can do that automatically. Oh, exactly. And it can look into your stock inventory. So you can connect the system to your stock inventory. Someone can say, hey, we just got an order for 5,000 units. And it'll be able to say, hey, you don't have 5,000 units. And based on production schedule, you won't have it for six weeks. And like it can tell you that in the middle of a meeting. So that's the power of the system. We can connect it to the entire knowledge base of a company, the privacy setting, because certain people in certain departments, you know, the, the companies don't want everyone knowing everything. And it's compartmentalized, but but we, we're already working through that, and, and there's ways to do it. Um, but that's probably the biggest challenge. The tech is already existing today, so smaller companies can use this a lot more easily than big companies. But within two years, within five years, every company in the world will be using AI assistance to run their meetings. It's all going to roll up to the CEO, so the CEO is going to get a report. So you do a company of a thousand people, and there's five thousand meetings a day. The CEO is going to get a report on the most important meetings that happened. Uh, what was said, you know, what was done, and what actions were taken, and any conflicts. And can you imagine getting a full summary of? Every, can you imagine as a CEO of a company getting a summary of, like, you know, and you don't have all the details, but at a high level, what's happening in your company every day? And you can get things like, well, the tone. You can get, you know, um, people are very sad, people are very happy, people are, you know, upset about this. This has become a big issue for the today's five thousand meetings. This is taking up a lot of time. Um, these are people who keep, you know saying they're going to attend meetings but never do and when they do they come in late and then they miss everything and you know like the ai becomes basically your assistant running the company and you can say this is very big brotherish and scary and but the, like companies monitor everything anyway communications are monitored phone calls are monitored you know emails are monitored this is, why is this any different except there's a level of intelligence on top of it and 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 the, the best people are going to be okay with it because they want the information that they're disseminating in a meeting to go up to the right people so that they know what's going on and so I, I just don't see a world where efficient companies, call it five or 10 years, are going to be not run by AI, at least partially assisted by AI. I don't know if you've seen uh, some of these bots that have been developed using ChatGPT for trading the markets. I, I got quite interested yeah. in that because, um, I, I mean, I do have a theory about that. It seems to be that you, you, it's it's going to find anomalies in the market, but if everybody starts doing or starts identifying the same patterns or the, the same mispricing opportunities, it very quickly, it's like an arbitrage, it very quickly will close up. What's your view on that? Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't think that every single um, model is comparable. So people, you know, remember you have different risk profiles and risk tolerances. So, so, you know, there's something called a sharp ratio where you look at what the potential upside, downside is. You probably know this, but um, everyone's got a different like appetite, right? So some people say, I want a sharp ratio of five before I enter position. Someone three, someone two. Um, you know, and because capital isn't balanced evenly across the, the risk return curve, um, you always have arbitrage opportunities where something is way, you know, something gets, gets repriced where the rate of return is lower than, let's say, for example, I get in early on a project. And the project rises 5x or 10x okay now i'm sitting going oh geez do i want to go and ride it out for another 20 percent a year or just take the cash off the table right now someone else may come in and say hey 20 percent a year sounds great i'll take it and so everyone's with different entry and exit points i don't think that the i don't think it it takes away anything i think it just basically helps people price their risk more appropriately have you left south africa permanently 
You know, um, I, I call myself, and I, it's funny, there was an article, I think Brainstorm called me an entrepreneur in exile. It's kind of like the you know, same political exiles that, uh, um, that you know, the ANC had, where you know, people had to go overseas for a couple of years because they'd never choice of being South Africa. I feel like that at the moment. Um, I, you know, would I ever return to South Africa? Absolutely something I, I'd consider. I love Cape Town and I love, uh, you know, you know, I, I love Cape Town in particular because just I lived there for so long and I loved it. Um, Joburg, Joburg is great, but you know, Joburg is Joburg. <laughs> it's it's you know, it's a different scene. Um, my hometown, East London, is a bit too small for me, obviously, so I wouldn't go back there. But if I came back to Africa, I'd probably I'd probably look at going to Cape Town. Um, maybe I'd retire there at some point. Um, that's always an option. Uh, you know, if 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 the political landscape got more interesting, maybe I'd start a political party. But I don't know. I, 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 I would, I would, I would, the thing is, is like, I thought about this, like, why would I give up a really good life right now to go and toil away in South Africa trying to fix these problems, which I don't think are fixable right now. So I think that, that South Africa needs a generational change of God. So I think the current generation that's in power needs to die, literally, like, you know, whether it takes 20 years or whatever. And then there needs to be a new generation. So I'm 44 right now. People who uh, left high school after democracy will probably need to be in control at some point. And so maybe it's 20 years from now that my generation's in, in, in power and they have a different view of the world and can fix things. But the, the, the problem is the people, you know, the people in South Africa who freed South Africa don't really have the skills to run it. And we've seen that from every single mishap. And then the corruption levels are pretty high. I mean, look at Eskom, CEO, Nelly getting assassinated. Like, who, who wants to deal with that? Nobody does. I'm like, I wouldn't want to go and fix up the, the messes there. And, and and we know South Africa is in a mess. This is not this is not news. South Africa is in a mess right now, but I don't think we have the wherewithal to fix it because of the, the political and power structures in the country. And it's been. And by the way, we adopted um, apartheid um, infrastructure and political uh, systems that were designed to basically prevent uh, the government from being overthrown. <laughs> If you think about it, the way that the political system was developed was was to basically prevent, you know, and Mandela really changed the course of history because he had, you know, he had the wherewithal to do it. He was a, a you know, an incredible leader, and he he had a very balanced view of how everyone should live together peacefully. And you know, he created the government of national unity. He did all the right things, but you know, obviously, we don't have him anymore. And what's left behind are people who think the country owes them something. Um, and that's a problem. And so we don't have a, you know, like I think South Africa would probably be better off as a, with a benevolent dictator than actually with a democracy. Um, sad to say, uh, because democracy hasn't worked for 30 odd years. So what would it take to get you to start up a political party in South Africa? I don't think, I don't think I, anyone from my generation can compete with the people in power right now. Uh, we just let them do their thing. Um, the, the, the sad thing from a historical context is that countries need to collapse before they can be rebuilt. And I, I hope it's not the, 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 the situation in South Africa, but with the way we're going with like stage six, stage seven, stage eight, load shedding, whatever, I, I, I don't see how it's not inevitable. Um, I still invest in South Africa. I still have a VC fund there. I still try and support people there. I, I invest properties. I do whatever. I do my bit, right? But um, And I visit from time to time. You know, I try to go every year, but uh, obviously COVID kept me out for a few years. Um, I, I'm hopeful, and I'm hopeful that things turn around. But I just think we need a generational shift. I think we need a new generation of leaders in the country. All right, Benny Langham. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. That was a fascinating discussion, and uh, we went all over the place from AI to politics to crypto. 
and uh, everything in between. Thanks very much for joining us on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. Great. Great being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.